Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 2, Edo, Japan, Part 2. The last episode, I covered the beginning of the Edo period. It was known for its isolationism, strict societal classes and hierarchy and order. But it started to see unravel a bit, beginning the second half of the era. And by 1800, internal issues with the merchant class rising in economic stature above the samurai and all the other classes, were casting doubts about the practicality and future of the class hierarchy in Japan. Also, outside nations were beginning to, by the early 19th century, seek out and engage Japan regarding diplomatic relations and trade. This would endanger its isolationist policy. In this episode... I'll continue with the Edo period, a continuation of those same internal and external pressures and issues. It will culminate in the arrival of Commodore Perry and the eventual fall of the Tokugawa shogunate. And I will provide an analysis of these events and compare these events with what was going on in China during the same period. Internally in Japan, the issues of samurai impoverishment continued. Lower-level samurais increasingly became frustrated that higher-ranking government positions went to privileged families with no chance of advancement. Compounding this were bad crop harvests in the 1830s, resulting in famine, disease, and death. Japanese officials failed to provide relief, leading to some peasant protests and riots. Outside pressures were also continuing to mount. In 1844, King William II of the Netherlands sent a letter to the shogun urging Japan to end its isolation policy or it would be ended by force from foreign countries. As I already stated, the Japanese were aware of the humiliation that the Chinese suffered at the hands of the English in the First Opium War. Japan had almost immediately after that began its modernization. Western books were translated into Japanese. The Japanese began studying Western military strategies. Those that could afford it sent their sons to foreign schools. Japanese envoys visited foreign countries. Japan was slowly preparing for the eventual encounter with these Western powers. About the same time, 
the Americans were becoming more concerned that if they did not act quickly, other nations, particularly European nations, would gain a foothold in Japan. The U.S. had already been beaten to the punch, so to speak, by the Europeans in the exploitation of China. Plus, the Americans wanted a refuge in Japan for its steamships to recall on their way to China. There were also many reports and concerns over the Japanese treatment of shipwrecked, shipwrecked American sailors and their desire to do something about that. The U.S. got to the point where it wanted to send to Japan an expedition seeking relations and to avoid being left out of the Asia-Pacific region and development and discussion. Everything would begin to change in the 1850s. Sometime in 1851, then Secretary of State of the United States, Daniel Webster, wrote a letter for the President, Millard Fillmore, to sign. It was addressed to the Japanese Emperor, telling him of the American expedition and asking for friendship, commerce, and coal for U.S. ships. It also, I found oddly, stated that the Americans had no religious purpose in their expedition. Had they been coached? Anyways, the American mission would be led by Commodore Matthew C. Perry. Perry, however, was not the first choice. Initially, Commodore John H. Aulick was chosen. But he got into a row with a Brazilian diplomat before the mission had left the United States. Aulick was accused of mistreating the diplomat. So Commodore Aulick was removed from the Japanese expedition and replaced by William, I'm sorry, by Matthew Perry. So Perry, with four ships, two of which could be characterized as war or gunboats, left Hampton Roads, Norfolk, Virginia, in November of 1852. And he arrived in Edo Bay, Japan, in July 1853. The Japanese, upon first seeing the vessels, described them as black ships. I am sure that conjured up all kinds of dark, evil fears. Perry was immediately requested by Japanese authorities to use the port at Nagasaki as it was and had been open to foreigners. But Perry refused, and it is reported he ordered his boats to fire blanks toward inland. Eventually, the Japanese accepted Perry's letters from the President of the United States, and he told the Japanese officials he would return the following year for their reply. Perry, just six months later, returned to Edo Bay in February 1854. He was permitted to land near Edo Bay 
to begin negotiations on the Americans' demands. The arrival of Commodore Perry's black ships in 1853, as you would imagine, caused great anxiety in Japan. While the Japanese were impressed by the steamships and their cannon, they also had been remo- they also had been warned, remember, that this day was coming and had begun preparing. The Japanese knew right away they were in trouble, and they would spend the next 15 years or so planning what to do. More immediately, however, what to do about Perry's announced return the following year. As one could imagine, the country was split. Resist or negotiate. The crowd that supported resistance relied on the strong nationalistic character of its citizens. The negotiate crowd, however, knew what was coming if the nation resisted. They believed the reports from the Dutch traders about the humiliation the Chinese had experienced 10 years earlier in the First Opium War. To the negotiate crowd, resistance would be futile and Japan would suffer the same fate as China. The shogunate, in an unusual move, decided to consult the emperor. And the emperor urged them to repel the Americans. But the shogun negotiated. What resulted was the first American treaty with Japan. And it is called the Treaty of Kanagawa. And it was signed on March 31, 1854, under the threat of force. Thus ended Japan's 200-plus-year-old policy of isolationism. The terms of the treaty were two ports would be opened to American shipping. Secondly, the Japanese would ensure the safety of American shipwrecked castaways. It also allowed for an American embassy in Japan. The treaty broke ground for future agreements. And about four years later, the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, also known as the Harris Treaty, was adopted in 1858. This agreement built on the Kanagawa Treaty, and it provided extraterritoriality rights for American citizens, foreign consuls, and import tax schedules in Japan and more treaty ports. But remember, none of these agreements were voluntary. For the Japanese, the agreements were a means to an end to avoid their destruction worse humiliation, and possibly colonization. Within a few years of the Kanagawa Treaty, other nations, England, France, and Russia, and the Netherlands, received similar agreements. Internally, the agreements had far-reaching consequences. 
The agreements were all done by the shogun against the council of the emperor. The shogun came off of the negotiations as weak, and many were critical of the shogun having allowed the country's defenses to become ineffective to these invaders. To many in Japan with strong nationalist views, they saw the shogun as an appeaser. Between 1853 and 1867, a period of time in Japanese history known as the Bakumatsu, converted from its nationalist, from its isolationist history and policy and feudal order to its pre-modern empire. This 14-year period of from 1853 to 1867, there was an ever-widening divide and struggle between pro-imperial nationalists and the shogunate forces. There was also growing resentment among outside lesser feudal lords with the elite lords or samurais. There were plans to replace in the early 1860s the Tokugawa shogunate and indeed the entire old world feudal system. Attacks on foreigners, sometimes violent, became more common in Japan. Rogue samurai, outraged by Western humiliations, attacked and killed Harris, from which the name of the treaty I just talked about came from, killed the Harris's secretary in 1859 or 1861, depending on your source, they also burned down the English, English legation in Edo in 1863. In retaliation, American and French fleets destroyed a few forts in Japan. The English in 1863 destroyed towns and buildings in Satsuma, Japan. Some samurai factions attacked Edo. I want to get into more specifics of some of these regime-ending events in the next episode. For now, just know that the culmination of all of this distress is the end of the shogunate. Even without the West's threat, the Tokugawa shogunate probably would not have survived. The regime failed for many reasons I've already mentioned. Certainly, one of those reasons was its inability to meet the Westerners' aggressions. One striking feature of this time to me, as I look at Japan's resolve to reform itself, is its motivation to escape the shameful humiliation by the Western countries that had fallen on China and India. So, what is interesting we now have enough information to begin making comparisons with Imperial China. After all, they too were an Asian isolationist nation and experienced many, if not more, of the Western relentless aggressions. 
By the middle of the 19th century, both Japan and China faced dual threats. Western attacks and internal divisions, rebellions, and civil strife. Certainly, the dual threat that was faced by China was more severe. And that may be one reason why the Japanese responded better. After the first opium war in China, Japan was shocked and terrified by what was reported to them. That event and their reaction provided all the impetus for serious reform in Japan. Most historians pin Japan's modernization commencement at 1840 or right after the first opium war in China. This would be roughly 20 years sooner than China's modernization commencement. After the first opium war, China learned very little. It certainly did not seek to modernize at that point. As far back as the 1840s, Japan began to introduce Western science and military and technology into its schools. Japan started to send some of its students from elite families to Western schools. China, on the other hand, only started this late in the 19th century. In response to its domestic and international turmoils, China sent its military. China finally woke up after the Second Opium War and beginning with the Emperor Tongzhi and the Tongzhi Restoration or Self-Strengthening Phase, China began to modernize. Or at least they woke up to the fact they had to modernize. Like I said, 20 years after Japan. Japan generally absorbed Western assault. China resisted it. And that's a key distinction. Japan generally absorbed Western assault. China resisted it. Another overlooked factor in the responses by these two great nations to Western assault is that Japan was much more socially unified than China. This no doubt helped Japan get everyone to push in the same direction. It was a smaller country geographically and communication distances were not as much as a factor as these were in China. Furthermore, politically, Japan had worked on two levels during the shogunate. Remember the local local level and the national level, the samurai and the shogunate each of them sharing some of the power. As a result of this, there was a tendency to coordinate and cooperate among the Japanese elites, to share ideas. You know, more heads on a problem are better than one. China, on the other hand, was a socially diverse country. More ethnicities, less social uniformity. This may have been a contributing input in the outcome of the Western assault. Politically, China was less diverse, more monolithic. There was no diffusion or diversity of thought on the national level. In China, the emperor, or those acting through the emperor, was the last and only decision that count. 
So, if China had a poor or incapable emperor, that would be most unfortunate. And there are more meaningful comparisons that can help explain the different responses and outcomes of each nation. Japan, up to the 16th century, had been a tributary state of China. So Japan had already learned or had the propensity to incorporate and adopt different cultures. It was used was used to playing second fiddle to China. It never had the same arrogance China had. Japan was willing to learn and change as necessary for its survival. Also, don't overlook opium and the myriad of problems that that caused China, and it had to play a role in the outcome, I'm sure. China also has land borders it had to defend. Japan had the luxury of the ocean surrounding it and providing it a natural defense. China also had more land area, more natural resources in Japan. Naturally, other nations would be attracted to China's landmass and resources. And finally, as I will get into in much greater detail in this series, Japan changed its entire political system right in the height of all the foreign interventions, 40 or so years ahead of the Chinese. We'll see how that turned out for both countries. Next episode, I will talk about the final events that would end the Tokugawa shogunate and usher in the Meiji era. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.